Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Monday, September 15, 1997, and Hunter Mariner's chief executive, Bob Ferris, was speaking with police after a rock attack at the club's headquarters, which had seen the front door and windows on the first and second floor of the building smashed. While no perpetrators would be caught, Ferris suspected the attack was the latest in a years-long battle between the Super League club and the Newcastle public, a stoush that would not end until the Mariners had gone the way of the residents of the graveyard adjoining their stadium. This is part one of Steel City Miracles, the 38th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, I'm over the moon for a Newcastle ep. Oh, this has been, in terms of the research, this has been right up there for me. I'm talking, you know, Jeff Muller and the Gold Coast levels of fun I had doing this research. <laughs> I don't like you putting this in the Gold Coast basket, but <laughs> So we are covering the Newcastle story in this chapter. And I say the Newcastle story because for me, it goes far beyond the grand final. As we've spoken about, it's perhaps an unearned fairy tale given the state of the game at the time and the drudgery of the 1997 in Super League and the ARL. But just this spontaneous outpouring of fan support and these unprecedented scenes in Newcastle. But it goes beyond that even. When you think about the Super League story, how many roads go through Newcastle from Chief driving the bus from the Mariners story, Aussies for the ARL, this being their heartland. They'd say that there's no ARL if the Newcastle had gone to Super League. And we can't tell this story without everything that happened in Newcastle. So it's just so critical to everything we've talked about over the past few years. So it's great to get a chance to really dive into it. Absolutely. And um, all the preparation, your incredible dossier on this chapter, which I really enjoyed going through and adding my thoughts and whatever. But just reliving it all, I watched the game again, talked to friends at length and just reminisced a lot about the era. And it's just been brilliant for me just to look at city now now i'm back in the city how it's changed which it has immensely remembering the old days and the old style of people that are getting to their 60s and 70s now they're going to be all died out soon there's great people and it's quite emotional uh, journey well yeah that's why i'm so happy to have you here specifically for this one uh and i had a few opening questions for you but firstly i think like in all the years we've been talking about footy I don't think I know where you were for the 1997 Grand Final. What are your memories of that well, I was, time? I was trying to pin it down, and I think I did a Michael Adams turning the back to the TV and <laughs> took a shift at Domino's Pizza, I think, <laughs> if I'm, because my manager, all my friends and that, we all worked at Domino's Pizza, 
and I was 17 and nine months or something when the grand final happened. I was delivering the pizzas, and our manager was a few years old, and he's a really cool manager. This guy, Brandon Walsh, and he's a massive, massive Knights fan. He got dressed up as um, Malcolm Young in the schoolboy outfit to go in for the celebrations. Yeah. I remember that, so I must have been at the store. If I can... <laughs> or I watched it and went to the store later. I don't know. I can't yeah. Remember, can't remember. I, I don't remember watching the game live, but I must have. Yeah. Because that was my next question was, did you buy into the community spirit or had your <laughs> contrarian streak? <laughs> well, I, I um, remember being proud about, you know, lining the streets and that type of thing for the bust on the way down there. I thought that's really cool. It's very Newcastle. But mm. I also remember thinking... People aren't being fair, Nick, me, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> after watching it back and reading all the quotes from your dossier, I, I kind of feel a bit um, embarrassed about not engaging in the community spirit, but I really didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I should pull back the curtain and let the listeners know that I've imposed a strict quota on half a comp drops <laughs> on you for, for this chapter. <laughs> I, um, why don't we just get half a comp stop out of the way early then? Because... All right. Yeah. Looking at the game, we're not discussing the game until chapter two in this Newcastle chapter, but they were a bloody good side. There's no doubting that. I just don't think they're on the level of Brisbane. No. Maybe a couple of other teams. They beat who was in front of them. It was an amazing game. They did the best they can, but it was just the absolute blanket ignoring of it, which annoyed me. No one just acknowledged it and said, we only won half a comp. It's still great, but you know, just let's just put a little bit of a mark here to say, well, we didn't beat everybody, but we beat everyone in front of us. No one mentioned it. Everyone just pretended, and that's what irritated me. It, a big part of this episode is that idea of myth making and just you know, kind of subverting the truth because the myth makes you feel better about it all. And honestly, the way I speak about this, I sound like a real obnoxious jerk. I acknowledge that. It's just I can't pretend. Uh, at the time, I was really obnoxious about it. But now I'm just like, well, it's an amazing thing. I'm glad it happened for the game. Great piece of history. But I still can't pretend that it wasn't half a comp. Do you think that 2001 erased some of that? If Parramatta had done what they should have done and you know swept through the nights and won the competition that year, is the stain there to this day? Because I think that that kind of allows people in Newcastle to celebrate it without the asterisks. Definitely. It does erase that part of it. I'll give you one better. Joey probably wouldn't be an immortal without that comp. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely for him, that is so important for his legacy. And again, I keep backtracking over this and trying to soften it or whatever. You can only beat who's in front of you. They beat a very good side and an amazing finish. It's just I would have liked people to be a bit more real with themselves at the time and said, mm. you know, it's great, but it was 12 teams. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two of them being the crushers and, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> and South and whoever else. But yeah, so I think that's all fair. And I guess for me it goes back to the beyond football aspect of it all. And what I'm really trying to do in this episode or this chapter is to work out how much is it Newcastle in particular, how much is it the Super League stuff that was going on, how much was it the the socio-political scene at the time. We're going to get into all of that, but I wanted to really lean on you as the resident Novocastrian to just put the place in a bit of perspective. So we're going to be talking about the culture of Newcastle people. What is that to you? What are the characteristics that make the people and the place who they are? <laughs> I, um, I've really come to love 
the old Nebuchadnezzarian culture, like the old ladies that used to be at the ground when you went there and they were there since Harold Matthews, SG Ball, knitting in the front row on the fence, decked out in full Knights gear, and then they'd be warm players and be warming up, and they'd be going, Darren Tracy be there, and they'd be going, have a good game today, Darren Love, you're going to go well? <laughs> and they're just like, just beautiful women. And um, they remind me of my mum and my aunties, these um, sort of short-haired Newcastle women, but they have a laugh and... You still see them around in, in shopping centers like Glendale if you're from Newcastle and stuff like that, but they're dying out now. So in 10, 15 years, there'll be none of those ladies left and the husbands or whatever. And I really miss those ones. They're so down to earth and unassuming and good people, good-hearted people, you know. But in the same respect, there's also a vindictive streak in real Novocastrians <laughs> where the, that they'll be quick to tell you that someone will give you the shirt off their back, but the evidence will be to the contrary, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> but he give it a shirt up his back. So why is he beating his wife up? <laughs> I think back to uh, our pre-rugby league podcasting days and a quote about Newcastle people and culture where you said it was the depth of a kiddie pool. <laughs> God, I'm obnoxious, aren't I? It's, um, <laughs> see, I'm not your typical average Newcastle guy of my age group because I was never a surfy type. You've really got to have that surfy undercurrent to be a proper, proper Novocastrian. So I've got the degenerate gambling. I've got the negative um, glass half empty outlook on life. That's very Novocastrian. But you know, I'm not your typical, typical Novocastrian. Someone like Joey is your typical Novocastrian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of the history we're telling, because we're going to look a bit at, at the history of the town. In my telling of this history, 1997, Newcastle, the city, is in a real period of transition. We're now 25 years beyond that transition. How much do you think has changed since the story we're telling? It's chalk and cheese. It used to be a big town. Now it's a city of suburbs, you know? So town meant something back then. Town is in like the city centre. That was a meeting place, you know, you go into David Jones, the mall was pumping, all the pubs and clubs were in there. Now... It's a ghost town pretty much. It's all, you know, Westfields and homogenized and stuff like that. If Sydney's 10 years behind London, we're 10 years behind Sydney, generally, yeah. up here. And now we're getting to what vegan restaurants and, you know, fancy cafes mm. and whiskey bars and that type of stuff. So we've got a bohemian scene around the city part. Never in a million years would that have been anything back in those days. It was a country town feel. Putting that together with the Knights, the phrase of the 90s, our town, our team. And I think that plays into this outpouring of support in 1997. You can't imagine like similar scenes if the Knights won the comp, you know, next year. But the thing about it is, I think so much of that mentality is still there among Knights fans. And I, I don't know if that extends to the whole city as it seemed to in 1997. But I mean, Knights fans to this day show up. They have this intense loyalty to their team. And and I think, you know, from my outside of you, that's something that hasn't gone away. I agree. There's no more loyal group of fans, that's for sure. And if they won the comp, there'd be big celebrations, but nothing like 97. Yeah. But I also put it down to the fact that we had this sort of chip on our shoulder, um, little brother to Sydney type thing happening, whereas that's dissipated a lot these days. People are very... Very fond of themselves up here these days. Well, I think people are pretty special up here now. Are you saying that there's people who think they're good? <laughs> definitely, definitely, which we never would have flown back in 97. <laughs> so, and you know, with the internet and stuff and all different avenues of entertainment, 
it wasn't ubiquitous where back in 97, Knights was everywhere and everything. Yep. It'll never be matched that celebration. Yeah, and all of that, the chip on the shoulder, and we're going to hear it all over the course of the next two episodes. (laughs) So let's get cracking. But that was great. Thanks for setting us up. No worries. Uh, And the other, I guess, central part of this is the idea of it being bigger than football. And and I really like this quote by Matthew Johns. Uh, This was talking to Matt Cleary in 2017. And I think this really sums up what we're talking about in terms of the broader context of the Knights' grand final win. So John said, if you look at any great sporting story, there are other things that run parallel alongside it. And for the people of Newcastle, what really sparked it was that there was just so much going on at the time. BHP had shut the doors on the joint. A lot of people lost employment. On top of that, the Rio Tinto mines were on strike. There were a lot of people in the town doing it tough and emotions were just really incredibly raw. And that's the position we find ourselves in 1997. Talk about the city in transition and a lot going on in the you know political environment. So I'm just going to give a brief overview of the history. And the fact is that Newcastle had been a coal town since time immemorial. The Awabakal people had used the coal that was in the ground for fires for thousands of years. The Awabakal word for Lake Macquarie translates to something like the place of the coal or something. Uh, Within 10 years of the First Fleet arriving, they had found coal in Newcastle and the first coal mine in Australia was established at Nobby's Head in 1801. Think about that. How big the country is. They're here for 10 years and they somehow find coal like 300 k's away. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? (laughs) They can Uh, sniff out a resource, the English. (laughs) (laughs) And so the story of Newcastle in the 19th century is very much coal-based. It was the coalopolis. And with this treacherous kind of work and very hard work for the coal miners, it quickly became a place of unions and strikes and industrial action. So their first union was set up in 1860. There was a major strike in 1861. And over the next 100 years, strikes were a semi-regular occurrence. There was a you know massive one in 1929 that even involved police firing on the miners and killing um, a striking miner. So Industrial relations has always been part of the Newcastle story, as has coal. Well, it can't be underestimated, just like in north of England, the impact of coal miners and union life and the attitude of league men, you know, but also Nova Catherine's in general. That pure obstinance that's uh, the basis of our personalities comes from that, I think. One thing that really stands out for me is the fact that from page one of his autobiography, Paul Harrigan is talking about coal and coal miners. And in your point, I think this statement here sums that up beautifully, the links between coal mining and rugby league and the shared mentality. Uh, So he was talking about this industrial action and the feeling that the miners were not getting looked after. Keeping that in mind, is it any wonder Novocastrians have occasionally cast a suspicious eye towards anyone in a position of power or authority? It might be a siege mentality, but it unites us on the sporting fields and in everyday life. <laughs> Lording siege mentality is hysterical. Um, <laughs> it should be a negative yeah. in human relations siege mentality. But um, I, Look, that's great, but I mean, does it have to extend to retail shops as well like, when you walk in? <laughs> 
Well, I think this is building up to my central thesis that a hundred years of siege mentality seeps out of the mines <laughs> and into the, the you know the very souls of the residents of the town. Look, I mean, I don't want to denigrate the hard work of the miners in the nineteenth century, dying for you know pennies, and uh, all the way up to the seventies probably. But this notion that miners are hard done by by nineteen ninety seven. They were earning triple what every other guy was doing as a fitter and turner, you know, working in the mines. Yeah. They had it easy, and they had a union that was taking the piss. Like the mining companies used to take the piss. So this whole um, miners that got a tough thing in the nineties was absolute bunkum. Yeah, because I didn't really know too much about you know mining work or anything like that. And then I moved to Nick Kosev country, a, b- a big mining town. Um, you know, thinking about this hard struggle of these workers, and you just see these. 18 year olds pulling up to the pub in a you know new club sport and (laughs) well i mean in saying that but you can still die doing the work so oh it's it's yeah let's not minimize it that much but i mean um no but i am going to do that because i've got mates that were joined when i was uh left school in the 90s and then other mates that didn't join the mines doing the same job one's earning three times as much as the other bloke family in the mines doing you know some of them doing not much for a lot of money (laughs) yeah and this is where Mal really in his book said that he came from 18,000 kilometers away, but in a mining community that was not so very different to his home in Northern England. And I think already now in, in this talk, you can see a bit of a demarcation between the coal miners in Yorkshire villages and what happened to them in the 80s compared to the mining sector in Australia. It's, you know, very different outcomes. Yeah, but this is what I'm saying. This whole thing about BHP shutting down the biggest myth of all, most of them went to the mines and were better off. We stopped blowing black smoke all over the beautiful harbour. In the north of England, they just had to sit around on the dole until Acid House come out, you know? Like- yeah. <laughs> um, let's get to that then. BHP, Newcastle, the steel city. So Broken Hill Proprietary Company. This is kind of embarrassing. I don't think I knew until I did this research that that's what BHP stood for. Well, it reminds me of a great Rodney Rude joke. <laughs> I got a job at BHP, found out what BHP stands for. Bloody hot pipe. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Rude. Uh, something tells me that Rodney Rude would have gone over massive at Newcastle Workers Club in 1997. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. Some of the funniest <laughs> belly laughs is Rodney Rude shows in Newcastle. Yeah. <laughs> So BHP had opened in Newcastle in 1915 and became a huge enterprise. It was the first Australian company to record a $1 billion net profit that took place in 1986. And in Newcastle, it quickly became one of the major employers. So I've seen various estimates over the years. So in 1933, a third of all Newcastle men were employed at the works. And even in 1982, BHP employed 10% of the town which is pretty massive. Yeah. So it was inextricably linked with the people in that everyone worked at BHP or had family members or new people working there, as well as dominating the landscape. Very heavy industry. It was so close to the CBD that in many ways defined the look of the city. The fact that it's considered nostalgia, this pollutant company, just boggles my mind. Oh, no, yeah. I watched this great uh, documentary, which is on Binge, about BHP uh, that was directed by uh, Machine Gun Fellatio's Chit Chat Von Lupenstab. So he's a Newcastle boy. Yeah, yeah, and he's actually partway through a series of short documentaries. They all run about forty minutes long 
on Newcastle. There's one on the Star Hotel. Really, really great stuff. It's been really helpful for me in my research. But it was so funny because you'd hear all these people talking about BHP with this like romanticized, you know, what a great employer it was and the community and and everything like that. And then it had just cut to, you know, like it was a major polluter in the river and, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cut to Jabaluka. Yeah. This was from a a book not charted on ordinary maps about uh, BHP in Newcastle. Shared experiences, for instance, of washing day toil ruined through a silent conspiracy of smokestack emissions and unfavourable winds characterised the unrelenting interplay binding the community. The day was rare when washing on the line was not covered in coal dust. Think about that. (laughs) You wouldn't see a more beautiful harbour and right next to the beach as well. And let's just put some smokestacks up (laughs) a hundred years and fuck this right up. (laughs) So that's the kind of historical context of Newcastle, a big coal mining town. It's a very industrial working class town. Um, Heading into the 90s, that was already starting to change. But there's a few key events that took place. The first event that I want to talk about happened just before the 90s on the 28th of December 1989, which was the Newcastle earthquake. That was a blow to the city. I'll give you the big tip. Yeah. I mean, you can tell in all the writing I've read in this era, you can see how how much it still affected people. Like, you know, 13 people died, $4 billion in damage, 10,000 buildings damage, 160 people injured. So a huge event in Newcastle history. The worst hit was the Newcastle Workers Club. Just on that, to me, that really speaks of something, the fact it was the Newcastle Workers Club. And I know by 1989, that was just another, you know, seedy pokey den and an entertainment venue, but it started as a legitimate club for working people. Again, it goes back to, you know, the myth versus reality, but just there's something so telling about the fact it was the workers club that was the center of this tragedy and the way that's resonated through the years it was like nature was saying uh, we're we're trying to tell you something out there in Newcastle we don't like you yeah (laughs) well the funny thing was that that earthquake was only a 5.6 on the Richter scale which isn't that big an earthquake but it was the fact that the city stands on these alluvial deposits so it's very you know soft ground underneath made it susceptible to this damage. So, but how poignant is that? Even the earthquake plays above its weight in Newcastle. Yeah, 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 totally. But it just seems so much of Newcastle history is shaped by what's under the ground. It's these forces beyond the people's control. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, one positive out of that was like a phoenix rising from the ashes, the new Newcastle Workers Club a um, plastic garish monstrosity which housed the world's biggest disco on Saturday nights for $2 entry fee. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the world's biggest disco. Do you think uh, that was Norris McWhorter approved? At, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you he wouldn't have let the policy of lining up in front of um, screwed up face thug bounces and if you had a logo on your shirt you had to turn it inside out in front of him to get in. I don't think Norris would have been a fan of that policy. Uh, And then, of course, in part two of this chapter, we're going to see the Knights' connection to the Workers' Club because that was the scene of their arrival after the grand final and, and the beginning of the huge party that would take place over the next week. So 1989, you see the earthquake that changed the shape of the city. In some ways, good. It allowed for some revitalization, like Beaumont Street was greatly affected by the earthquake. That strip started to change. Let me just give you a bit of a reality check on Beaumont Street. Because (laughs) 
reading your dossier, it reminded me of when I had this um, girl I was seeing in Sydney coming up to Newcastle and I was looking up things to do in Newcastle because I just moved back up here. And one of them was a historic walk down Beaumont Street, right? <laughs> and it was like number three on the list or something. I was like, historic <laughs> walk? All it is is literally a street with a couple of shops and cafes and maybe like a post office building in like 1920 or something. There's nothing there. Well, I think it might have been in Chief's book as well, but I can't remember the exact quote, but it was like, you know, well, it's not exactly Paddington now. It's, it's really <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad vibe in there. You can get, get something to eat and whatever, a couple of good pubs or whatever. But I mean, for Christ's sakes, it's not like it's not the, the Cathedral of Notre Dame. <laughs> um, so the earthquake happens. That starts to change the city. In 1997, BHP announces that they will be closing. They issued their blueprint that gave over two years' notice for the closure, which was said to have, you know, it was going to have a huge effect on unemployment and it was going to be bad for the city. We're forgetting the compounding effect of the um, national economic crisis at the time, like massive interest rates, high unemployment, all that bullshit. So um, Just starting to come out of a nationwide recession. And it was great heartstrings fodder for the papers, especially in relation to the Knights. This was Francis O'Shea in the Daily Telegraph. Newcastle was likened to a city of beaten favourites, rocked to the core by the planned closure of BHP. The heart and soul was ripped out of the place when BHP announced they would cease steelmaking in the year 2000. Heartstring manufacturers must have been selling a lot of replacements because they were plucking them a lot in uh, yeah. that era. <laughs> uh, so that sets the tone. Like It was an easy thing to reach for if you were looking for an emotional beat in your story. It's like, oh, the steelworks is closing. Everyone's going to be out of work. But- you could already see that the city was ready for that change, even beyond, the, you know, the pollution and, and the shadow it cast over this, you know, beautiful beach community. The economy was already starting to diversify and become less reliant on steel. So, you know, there were protests staged, but they really struggled for popular support. So at one protest, they only got 150 people that turned up and, you know, it was moving from the front page of the paper to, you know, the third and fourth and fifth pages within a month. I mean, Aussies for the ARL would have got that, you know, one phone call. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, you think about the other big protests at the time. So we've got the mining protest, Rio Tinto, as we're about to talk about. Uh, in Sydney, you had the MUA. I think that might have been a year or two later. So the union movement was strong, but there was this kind of maturity about the way the BHP closure was handled, especially in the press. So in the Newcastle Herald, they wrote an editorial saying that it was time to move beyond this and not get dragged down into the negativity about the closure of the steelworks. They said um, if they did that, if they drown in negativity, it would be the day that Newcastle began sliding into irreversible social and economic decay. It was a time to move forward. Look, again, I, I don't want to minimise it, but I mean, it's not like they're in, um, you know, Huddersfield, you know, something. It's yeah, got beautiful beaches. You can make it a tourist destination. You got education. You could do whatever you want. They, they sent some government call centres up here. You know, offices. Well, the, the, well, this yeah, this is the big thing, and and this is the real difference between the north of England and what happened in Newcastle, Australia, is that. When the mines closed under Thatcher in the early 80s, the miners were told to get on your bike, leave your towns, go, you know, find work where it is. There was no plan for revitalization of Featherstone or, or wherever else. It was the jobs aren't here, you've got to go. 
Newcastle were given options that, you know, government services and health and universities were there for employment. And of course, the mines didn't close. That's probably the biggest one yeah, of all. Yeah, they, they, they still had um, someone else's uh, natural resources to keep <laughs> pillaging. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so anyone who tries to draw two close links between Newcastle, Australia and the north of England, it's not a like-for-like comparison, despite some of the many similarities that we've discussed over the years. So the city was already moving on. Milton Coburn writing about it in the Sydney Morning Herald. I think this sums it up about Newcastle's relationship to BHP. Steel City has not been an accurate description of Newcastle for more than two decades, but it's taking a long time for the rest of Australia to wake up to this. The idea that BHP's withdrawal will devastate the economy is one example of the myths that seem to become attached to Newcastle. So that's the BHP story. The mining strike was the other, you know, major kind of source of tension and uh, if you wanted to get some emotional beats, you could also draw it from there, especially in relation to the Knights with Gary Johns, father of Andrew and Matthew, becoming the face of the mining strike at the time. So he wasn't employed at Rio Tinto, I don't believe. He was there like just, you know, in solidarity. But he was always in the press, you know, in photos and being at the picket line. Real character, Gary Johns. Oh, yeah, and we have a lot more of Gary Johns to come in this chapter. Love it. And this fed through to the Knights with them uh, planning to go to the picket lines after their grand final win. During grand final week, Matthew Johns came out in a CFMEU hat, so those connections were never far away. I've said it since the start of this podcast how much I love Matthew Johns. I think he's criminally underrated as a player, and I love him as a bloke, best bloke in footy I've ever met, in fact. But I'll put this to you. Do you think Mr. Unions is uh, earning his several million dollars a year now and sharing it with his comrades that operate the cameras or is he giving it to his yeah. family? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I, in his defense, I think some of his statements showed that he was pretty clued on to what was happening at the time and, and he believed in the cause. It wasn't just Gary John handing him the hat and telling him to wear it. I think it was... No, I, I, uh, I say he did believe it in the cause. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying, does he live it now? <laughs> Yeah, well, so the, the Knights' plan to visit the mines ended up being scuppered because it became this political football. So the mine manager said that the scabs would like a visit too. So this was Alan Davies. <laughs> he said, we've got 80 people working through the strike who are also Knights fans and supporters, and they'd like the chance to congratulate the Knights on their win. <laughs> when you hear the word scab mentioned, it's not going to be a reasonable conversation. <laughs> Uh, so in the end, the club had to call off the visit because it was causing too much of an issue. But it just, again, it shows you those links between the town and the team. But, you know, moving from the history to more of a talk about the culture, I guess this is my argument, is that the industry and the demographics of a town can change. But when you've got 100 plus years of this history, it starts to seep in to the character and the culture of people living there. And I think it's harder to shake off. And you can see this mentality all the way through the Knights culture. And I argue that this plays a part in everything that happened in Newcastle, you know, from April Fool's Day 1995 on. And a lot of that goes back to this chip on shoulder mentality that uh, <laughs> we've talked about many times. And I've just got a few quotes to illustrate what I mean by this. So this was uh, Kevin Cranston in the Newcastle Herald. This was in the aftermath of the Knights win. With the cry of Newcastle echoing behind us, we headed home, home to a town of winners, 
home to a place that no longer needs to apologize for itself or make excuses. <laughs> Reading that, I was like, mate, we weren't asking for an apology. No, that's it. I mean, but we thought that. Yeah. Um, Sydney, big shot Sydney people think they're better than us. Where's Newcastle again? Yeah. Uh, this was Steve Crow. Newcastle does have this parochialism because we've always got the raw serve. We've always been poor cousins. We've always been looked down upon. We're the dirty <laughs> northern working class town. <laughs> oh, I love Steve Crow. That's a, there's a chronic case of good bloke artists. Um, <laughs> That's so true, man. It really is so true. This one-sided um, few that the other, yeah. the other side's not aware of, it's hilarious. And I guess that speaks of the Sydney arrogance because my first thing reading that was like, <laughs> mate, I didn't think you were a dirty northern-class working-class town. I just I just didn't think of you ever. You thought you were a place to stop for a piss on the way to Gold Coast. <laughs> uh, that's typical Sydney big shot fat cat mentality, <laughs> mate. Uh, and the last one, Matthew Johns. People are sick of getting kicked in the teeth. We we saw this as an opportunity to get some esteem for Newcastle and there was no way we were coming off losers. (laughs) But, I mean, that siege mentality works in football, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. But I love when you apply it to uh, the competence of your administration. So um, (laughs) this is Michael Hill, in my estimation, weaponizing the siege mentality. Michael Hill was the uh, chairman or CEO, I think chairman, uh, of Newcastle. Newcastle has always struggled for money. It's the culture of the town. We were broke twice and we almost went under, but it didn't affect our club or our team. It was just another battle to fight, another day to survive. Can we go back to you being broke twice? Why are you still in problem? (laughs) This hard done by um, club that had an entire city at their disposal. Yeah. Entire city of league mad people at their disposal and nearly went broke twice. Yeah. And the administration is still employed and can talk about being <laughs> battlers. It's like, right, yes, you're a working class town. It's okay to say that your fans are battlers, but you guys, like, you, you need to rise beyond that. <laughs> but those links, the culture of the town and the team was just so intertwined. And partly because it was such a team of locals. On page one of Chief's autobiography, he says, we were the sons of coal miners and steel workers. His dad had worked in the mines before getting injured. Plenty of the Knights players uh, had either started as apprentices or, with, you know, Steve Crow had only recently left the mines. Darren Albert was an apprentice at BHP. So those links were all the way through the team. You forget they all had jobs, right? Earlier. Yeah, yeah. And I think because of that, it added this extra layer of loyalty among the fans. So uh, I love this quote from Jeanette Gilchrist. She was the manager of the night store at Stockland Shopping Mall. She said, we call them our boys. They're pretty down to earth. We haven't come across any of them who are smart, but it's true. People have put them on a pedestal. <laughs> <laughs> Does she mean smarter than smart ass? I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'd have well, to she call them all dumb. <laughs> well, does it go back to thinking you're good? I think she means smart ass. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But so I think because of this siege mentality, the chip on the shoulder and the really close links between the players and the town, it makes perfect sense that it was Newcastle that the Aussies for the ARL took off. Absolutely. But let me talk about the chip on the shoulder thing. Yeah. It doesn't work, the siege mentality that everyone's against this thing, unless you really believe it. Yeah. And guys like Chief, they really believed it. Yeah. 
Like there wasn't an affectation. Let's rile him up with this sort of speech. It was, mate, they're out to get us. <laughs> we need to do something. Well, that's it. Like I think every team in any sport who has ever won a grand final has said that no one believed in them. I bet the fifty nine dragons were like no one thought we could do it. <laughs> 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 But you know when that's just an affectation and it's their talent and their stars carrying them through and when it is something genuine and they wouldn't have won without that mentality. And I think Newcastle, as good as that team was, it was that mentality that really carried them through the grand final. What was funny about that squad, mate, was that their razzle-dazzle players were those guys as well. Yeah, the John's yeah. boys, yeah. Albert, yeah. Uh, Robbie O, or he's a real estate agent, but... Uh, <laughs> It wasn't just Mark Glanville's, you know, all the way through. Mm. It was just a real, like, anti-Lair culture when you had, you know, Glanville, Butterfield, Chief, like, th- th- you know, these, like, really hard-nosed veteran core there and all the star players were mostly locals too. Like, it was just a very grounded team. It wasn't as anti-Lair as the early Knights teams. Yeah. David Mullane, Robbie McCormack-style teams. They were tremendously anti-Lair. <laughs> so, as I said, I think it makes perfect sense that it was – in Newcastle that the Aussies for the ARL took off. And I think we need to speak about the Aussies for the ARL to put more of a context into uh, this story. And um, I think we've pussyfooted around it, you know, our opinions on Aussies for the ARL. So I like seeing some statements putting it uh, in blunt terms. So this was Louise Evans in the Sydney Morning Herald in 1998 talking about them. She said, a member of the redneck Aussies for the ARL traditionalist lobby group. Although that's not in quotes or anything. Like it's just, yep. <laughs> Factual error. I've got a little um, admiration for Barb after reading all this. I do too. Like to me, she speaks of some of what you mentioned at the top, those old Newcastle ladies. I think she's definitely of an era and I feel like I know plenty of Barb's. Well, it's one of those ones where you got to break a few eggs to get things done type ladies. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I'm running the Belmont shopping complex. I've made $60 million in profit. I've got to crack a few eggs to get things done. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Don't come to me with complaints. And that was Barbara Davis. So the stories were in the press that Newcastle were going to Super League. So she got it all up and running. Had a meeting at Newcastle Workers Club. Got 2,000 people there. Think about that. I mean... It- any other situation, would you get 2,000 people to show up on a, a whim? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really shows you how much it meant to Newcastle people, this team. But at that meeting, the Newcastle board was condemned. This was uh, David Rowe who was at that meeting. He's a you know sports academic. This was actually from a Tom Brock lecture that he gave some years ago. So I'll just read this out. At the height of the Super League war, I recall attending a Stop Murdoch Committee campaign rally organised by Aussies for the ARL, in the main auditorium of what was then the Newcastle Workers' Club. Kerry Packer was cheered and Rupert booed and hissed in true Christmas pantomime style, and only a foolhardy dissenter would have seized the microphone and declaimed a pox on both their houses. But the House of Packer did sell out the ARL. I like that for the foreshadowing of what would happen with Packer, but also I think that really nicely sets the scene of the vibe in the Workers' Club at that meeting. Great piece of writing, that. We've covered some of the Aussies for the ARL obnoxiousness through 1995 and 1996. Undeniably funny. Yeah, undeniably funny. We couldn't mine it for more cheap laughs, but I think we've made the case then. So I just wanted to update on 1997 and beyond. The Aussies for the ARL uh, with fearless leader Barbara Davis still right up for the fight and getting right amongst it. So uh, one major activity that year was to protest Telstra sponsoring Super League. So they organised a big protest at that. 
even got Optus on board who sent their promotion team and balloons and they sent Blocker and Mario Fennec to help with the protest. Like, I don't know, if I'm like a major telecommunications company, I'd probably stay clear of Aussies for the ARL in this protest. <laughs> um, what they probably thought was that they're probably pretty reasonable people and we can control them <laughs> and then, <laughs> then realise straight away, oh, I'm running the Aussies for ARL. You keep <laughs> your bullshit Sydney ideas out, out of this place. <laughs> I like the statement by the Optus people. A spokesperson confirmed that his team will cooperate with and support Barbara Davis. It has a bit of a hostage kind of vibe to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I reckon she sat him down and gave us some home truths for sure. Yeah. <laughs> she was also involved in a promotion to get the ARL to have a fan award at the grand final. So for the team that showed the most colour and support throughout the semi-final series, they would be honoured on grand final day. Uh, the ARL thought that was a great idea and who should win that award but Barbara Davis herself. So on grand final day, she was presented with uh, the award and, and some recognition for all that she'd done. Most recently, she's relocated to the Coffs Harbour region a number of years ago. And I can't remember if she's protesting for the freeway bypass or against it, but uh, I hope the latter because bloody hell we need that bypass. But anyway, so she's still... Uh, an active agitator to this day. So I think they're all against it up there because it's going to kill all the local businesses. I was up there recently. Yeah, well, this is a separate competition, but I feel like towns are so much better once they've been bypassed. But um, Coffs could actually be a pleasant place without that freeway in the middle of it. Yeah, I agree. But I think it speaks of this culture of fan entitlement that ran right through the Aussies for the ARL. Uh, a story I love was Neil Whitaker, a guest on 2GB, and a caller rang in, saying that he'd been calling Whitaker at the ARL every day for the past year but couldn't get past the secretary's he'll call you back line. <laughs> That's Newcastle right there. Yeah. I've got an idea how to fix the game. I'm going to talk to the bloke. Yeah. I'm going to take him a call. You know, like, I, I totally get that. Uh, so Whitaker told him to leave his number with the switchboard and he'd get back to him. So. <laughs> I bet you any money he's at the uh, club five years later. The bastard still didn't come. Yeah. <laughs> and John Rebo was the guest on 2GB. A barber from Newcastle got on the air to give him a big serve. Uh, she didn't <laughs> identify himself, but Phil Gould was on the program and said, that'd have to be Barbara Davis. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it would be her. She would identify herself. Would you yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> Uh, and one of my favourites, and this goes back to Johnny Rape and Muralgate and the key role she played in trying to resolve that, but when the NRL headquarters were set up at Fox Studios was their first home, they moved some memorabilia from Phillips Street to the NRL headquarters, including a framed Keith Barnes kangaroo jersey. Uh, and this was too much for Babs, who said... You can't believe how distressed and angry people were. Memorabilia like that belongs in Phillips Street, nowhere else. It's part of the game's history and heritage. If the NRL want memorabilia, surely they've got to accumulate their own, starting from this year. <laughs> I mean, that's a hard-line approach. <laughs> Just to be that switched on that you're firing up over a, a framed Keith Barnes jersey. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the attitude of what's right's right. If you're going to let stuff go that's not right... Well, you may as well pack it in. Yeah, so she was in the fight all the way and just a, a great Newcastle figure, Barbara Davis. But I wanted to give a bit of an Aussies for the ARL encore in this chapter just because I think 
so much of that goes hand in hand with the mentality towards the Hunter Mariners, either directly with the Aussies for the ARL directly speaking out against them, or just as the Aussies for the ARL as a proxy for Newcastle as a whole and its attitude towards the Mariners. And this goes even to the Mariner name. This is one of my favourite quotes. Uh, So a joint letter written by uh, secretaries of the Maritime Union, Laurie Steen and Jim Boyle. (laughs) This was published in the Newcastle Herald, which I think in 95 through 97, it went from being a Knights fanzine to just an (laughs) anti-Mariners propaganda. um. So this was their opinion of the Mariner name. Being a mariner is about having a rich history, about camaraderie, about unity, about bonding, about servicing an island nation in trade and commerce, and about working class (laughs) unity. We believe Super League is none of these things. (laughs) Desecrating the word mariner. (laughs) I mean, that's a part of the Newcastle thing is in not letting anything go. Yeah. Through the keeper. The Barnes jersey, the word Mariner, like everything's got to be commented upon. Yeah. I've got to say that Mariners never uh, appealed to me as a team nickname. Yeah. I don't know what you'd go with, but it seemed just a bit ill-fitting. I'm more a land lover myself, but um, <laughs> I'm not too big on the high seas, but even so, it just didn't fit. They were playing nowhere near the water as well. Yeah, sort yeah. Of West Newcastle. Yeah. So. And you can't come up with a cool logo or a cool mascot with a Mariner. It's like a John West can. Yeah. (laughs) So the Newcastle Trades Hall Council were heavily vested with um, the Workers' Club and with the Knights. They were pressuring local businesses against sponsoring the Mariners. Let me think about that. It's absolutely out of control. Yeah. We've spoken in the past about the Aussies for the ARL stopping them from putting flags up on Newcastle (laughs) streets and... (laughs) It was just from the outset, this, I guess, kind of like business-style agitation fed into violent agitation on the street. So <laughs> so from court reports in the first case in 1995, found that there were death threats sent to Mariner staff members, that there was pressure being put on sponsors by members of the Trades Hall Council. There were Two junior players wearing Mariners polo shirts being attacked in the street. I mean, think about it. So two separate incidents. One player was spat on. The other had a man in his 50s take a swing at him. (laughs) In fairness, that could happen without the Mariners jersey. (laughs) So Uh, This was maybe like 1996, the Mariners go quiet, things settle down. Uh, This was perhaps... Premature, a call by Steve Mascord in February 1997 saying, Newcastle, it seems, has learnt to accept a Super League club. At Mariners headquarters, the abusive phone calls have slowed down to a trickle. <laughs> uh, and then once the season kicked off, there was a bomb scare for their first home game. And then in September, the famous incident of rocks being thrown through their headquarters, damage to all the windows, the front door. It was perpetually um, broken, that window. Yeah. <laughs> there was like a top one, a smaller one above the door sort of thing, and that was always broken. Mm. They never fixed that or, or they kept breaking it. But uh, again, it, you can't rule out the local dickhead factor. It could have just been a random um, <laughs> building, but I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I like this Bob Ferris, the CEO of the Mariners. 
Ferris said he hoped the attack was not linked to Newcastle Knights supporters. It's like it was. <laughs> I mean, it was definitely linked to Newcastle Knights supporters. The Rock probably had a note wrapped around it. Fuck you, man! <laughs> and, and the funny thing was that it happened the night of the Knights' semi-final loss to Manly. So it was almost certainly some Knights fans were like drinking at the pub and were upset about the loss. It was on the main drag at Broadmeadow from memory in the Mariners' office, right? yeah. Which was uh, down the road from the Major Maccas, which is where everyone walked from the ground on the way to the station. So everyone would go from the stadium to the Maccas uh, and then to the station to get the train. Mm. So they must have just trotted down the road a few blocks and a couple of Woodstock bourbons mm-hmm. in there. I guess that's a way of trying to set up the vibe of the Mariners in 1997, which wasn't good. You've spoken a bit on it in the past, but what do you remember of, you know, you walking around in the Mariners polo? Like, did you feel safe? This is how dumb I was as a kid. Besides the fact I was um, one of the weirdest looking blokes getting around at like 60 kilos and six foot two with a giant head, um, a Beatles haircut, I think people would have thought I was a bit off. So they wouldn't <laughs> harass me in general. That's what I think. Wait, were you um, in your like John Lennon round glasses era yet? No, nah, I was into the Beatles style though, yeah. for sure. I only really went to golf and um, I was such a nerd. I didn't really do anything yeah. too much. So I was only really wearing it at the golf course and you know, around the town or whatever. So I didn't even consider I wasn't safe, which is um, probably a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the Knights didn't do enough to try to suppress this fan antagonism. So they flamed it. They didn't suppress it. Yeah, 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 exactly. So um, Michael Hill said, you could call it confrontational, but whenever there's a new operator in your market, it's their corporate mission to succeed over the top of you. So you've got to do the best you can for yourself. It's just commercial sense. How funny is the rugby league business speak? <laughs> Every time they try to adopt it, whatever year, it's just hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so Knights players were... Not outright banned, but it was strongly suggested they don't go to any Knights games. Michael Hill said, I don't think players can be in the position of taking significant loyalty payments and then spend some of that money on the opposition. Chief Executive Ian Burnett went a step further and said, if you were working at Tui's and kept being seen walking out of the bottle shop with cases of Fosters, you wouldn't be working at Tui's too long. Bringing a beer analogy in is very smart for everybody. It's funny because when I read that, I was like, well, you know, Tui's don't own me after hours. Like, I can spend my money on what I want. Then I remembered the fact that my dad worked at Carlton United Breweries my whole childhood. Tui's was the absolute enemy in our household. I was six (laughs) years old hating Tui's. And to this day, (laughs) I still carry this visceral disgust at anything (laughs) Tui's related. I will not drink a single one of their products. (laughs) What did your old man think of Tui's 2.2 when it dropped? Weak as piss. <laughs> so now I can see Ian Burnett's side a bit more once I thought about it. I don't think that the Knights had anything to worry about in terms of Knights players going to Mariners games uh, if their sentiments were the same as Gary John's. So this was Gary John's when he was asked if he thought the Mariners would be supporting the Knights in the grand final. I don't care what they will be doing. They're traitors. <laughs> Uh, The Mariners, conversely, they were often in the position of choosing to take the high road, which maybe it was the only option they had, but it was a smart one. So Michael Hagan, when asked about the same thing, about whether their players could go to Knights games, he said, we'd even encourage our players to go to their games. It's not an issue with us. I mean, I think that was their only option, to be honest. If they started getting combative, it would have created a whole lot more combustion, but it's so pathetic when you think about it. Oh, 
as is, so this was a late season game. Someone had a bedsheet size banner that said "Piss off, Mariners." That <laughs> they um, they paraded at Marathon Stadium. This was in the Daily Telegraph. So, and I haven't found another account of it, but the Daily Telegraph wrote that. Uh, the club compounded the felony by assigning a security guard to ensure the message had safe passage. That's, that's so, uh, again, I, I, I don't know if that really happened, but Michael Hill certainly seemed to suggest that he wasn't anti the banner. He was asked about it and he said that, you know, he couldn't understand what all the fuss was about and didn't do anything about it. I love this from Bob Ferris. The piss-off Mariners sign the Knights management allowed supporters to parade around Marathon Stadium at their last home game might be linked to the attack on our premises. I was walking down the main street only a day after that game when a 70-year-old lady came up to me and repeated the slogan. (laughs) I mean, people in their 70s accosting you on the street. It's a bad time for all. (laughs) Oh, my God. So with all this, I think the Mariners had no choice but to take the high road and to try to market themselves a bit differently and to not try to put themselves as being in direct opposition to the Knights. They definitely like went after the, the youth demographic, so trying to put on promotions at their games that would attract the 18- to 25-year-olds, going for the younger market with their – this is too many mascots, so uh, – <laughs> So these were the mascots at their stadium. Salty the Sailor, Wally the Walrus, Mariner Man, Seaweed the Clown, and Captain Andy. I've never, ever been moved from age four till whenever to go to anything for the sake of a mascot. Yeah. The mascots are just a bit of garnish that you can take or leave. Newcastle Falcons have Fat Elvis in a fat suit holding a big letter D in a fence chanting defense. That's all you need. (laughs) You don't need these elaborate things. Well, I don't know. How many people are still with the game today because they got to give a high five to Seaweed the Clown? I'll get you one better. The Newcastle Knights long-term mascot, Rusty, used to drive around on a um, – Rusty's like a knight with a weird nose. He used yep. to drive around on like an ATV uh, four-wheeler. Yeah. Um, he sort of drove to each corner and put his sword up or whatever. He's yeah. known as Rusty the Pedophile. <laughs> Shit. He's not a pedophile, but that's what everyone calls him. Like, oh, here's this fucking mascot, Rusty the Pedophile. So, no one wants it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so maybe the mascots are unnecessary. They missed a golden opportunity to revive the ship shapes. That's a big loss, actually. Big loss. Uh, but then they had some promotion. There was a girls' night out game where the women got free entry. I think a man there tried to sue them for um, discrimination. Uh, so that backfired. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> snake bitten. <laughs> they had the Simpsons turn up. For one game, which, again, even a four-year-old knows a guy in a rubber suit is not the real Homer Simpson. So I don't know what that's <laughs> going to achieve. I just don't understand why the game that you are is not the attraction. Come and watch Rugby League. It's so much fun. Not We've got this game on. It's not very good, but we've got this uh, other razzle-dazzle which will really get you in, you know? Well, I think Graham Murray speaks of your frustration because he was asked about the crowds and he said, I don't like crowd questions because I always get fired up. All I can say is that if you weren't here, then you missed a great try. It's the best try I've seen this year, and I watch a lot of football. So the entertainment wasn't bringing the fans, but the football wasn't bringing the fans either. There's a great story where it was a terrible day in Newcastle, sub-10 degrees, rain falling horizontally, and the Knights getting you know over 6,000 fans turning up for a game against Norths. Like, 
six thousand was the high point of the Mariners' season. So it <laughs> 6, was just was a bumper day, Mariners. Yeah. Uh, so it was vastly different circumstances, and that went right through to the stadium that they played at. So they were barred from using Marathon Stadium by the Knights. Right there, that ended them because the stadium yeah. was no good. Yeah. So they offered to pay $250,000 a year in rent. They offered a $4 million upgrade of the facility. But the Knights deal said that they don't have exclusive use of the stadium, but with their lease agreement, they had the right to exclude a competitor from using it. So Ian Burnett said, we let the rugby union play here. Carol's by Candlelight was here, but we didn't want our competitor playing here. The contempt for unions hilarious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're the competitor. Um, so... The Mariners were out at Marathon. This did backfire a bit on the Knights because Newcastle City Council then charged them $138,000 in back rent, saying that, well, if you are banning them from playing here, well, that is you showing that you do have exclusive rights over this stadium. So that came back to bite them, but it was bad for the Mariners. It meant they were at Breaker Stadium, Topper Stadium, the place where the Newcastle Breakers played in the NSL, uh, an 11,000 capacity stadium, the smallest stadium in Super League. It's just a local league ground, really. Yeah. And as it turns out, 10,000 was way more than they needed. This was uh, Super League magazine talking about the Mariners' on-field success. Ironically, Topper Stadium is next door to a cemetery and it quickly became a graveyard for visiting teams. <laughs> and it's like, it is ironic, but not the way you think, Super League magazine. <laughs> the, the worst propaganda arm in the history of propaganda. <laughs> it actually worked out not so bad because it was an illegitimate ground. It would have been better if they played at Marathon. But if you had 4,000 at Marathon, it would have yeah. been a cavern. So 4,000 mm. at this local league ground wasn't undoable. You could have a good time there still, but... Yeah, it wasn't um, the vision, let's put it that way. No. But I think what all of this did was to give the Mariners a dose of that siege mentality. So they had no support. All they could do was draw on each other and also try to convince the community. And they did that in a number of ways that had really positive benefits. Like just starting with that stadium, you know, Super League delivered over a million dollars in ground improvements. So the breakers... After 1997, they became like big recipients of Super League. So they were big in the community in charities. When we spoke to Ben Darwin, he mentioned getting a Mariners scholarship through Newcastle Uni despite playing rugby union. So they were giving back and putting into the community despite their lack of any traction with that community. Honestly, as far as a, um, an organisation are hiding to nothing, they perform remarkably well on the field more than anywhere, but off the yep. field as well. And did it with dignity. And looking back on it, you've got to admire the blokes involved in it. Absolutely. I think the administration did really well. They were mature and rose above a lot of the bullshit. We've spoken so many times about Graham Murray. We don't have to go into it at length again, but he's just so pivotal to this story. I don't think there's many other coaches who could have achieved what he did with the Mariners in 1997. So this is what I loved about it, being there firsthand, mainly out of spite. I really learned to love the team and um, it yeah. was organic. The growth of it was organic. Kamali coming out of nowhere. Mm. Those really cool, unheralded players like Paul Marquette, a former knight, you know, just real heart and soul blokes and uh, Robbie McCormack. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and I mean, it really was the unearthing of some talent that would, you know, be so key 
to rugby league in the next few years, like Kamali, Scott Hill, Robbie Ross. And then you had all the juniors like Willie Mason was there, Kurt Gidley was there. Like, So you had something to build on. Uh, it was just unfortunate that you also had the Newcastle Knights there like casting this huge shadow over everything you were trying to achieve. Let me tell you something. If they didn't get disbanded in reunification, there'd be zero chance that it'd be a success even with all that positivity because yeah. <laughs> wouldn't it be like GWS and Swans or something where you can build a little base, a proper little base, it would have been 6,000 till the end of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So already halfway through 1997, it was very clear that there was no future for a standalone Mariners team. So a merger with the Knights was viewed as the most likely scenario for obvious reasons. The Mariners were actually, the way they talked about, they were surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly because they knew where they were at, but they were open to the idea. So Bob Ferris said, Why can't we sit down together and work out something that's going to be good for Newcastle? The Knights turned down the opportunity to become involved in Super League, and I get involved because I thought the city should have a foot in both camps. Now they find they were wrong. They want to get rid of us because we were right, which, you know, I don't know if I agree with the latter part of that statement, but I think it shows that he was willing to talk. But what sort of merger is it? We'll just absorb your players and whatever else we want and then you go away? It's not a merger. It's a Well, yeah, I think our Michael Hill's statement tells you what kind of merger it would have been. He said, I don't think anyone seriously thinks that if something like that was to happen, the team wouldn't play at Marathon Stadium, wear red and blue, and be called the Knights. <laughs> so it's St. George Illawarra without giving up the socks. It's a liquidation. Hill said that if there's no Super League, the Mariners cease to exist. So they had no interest at all with talking to the Mariners about a merger. And then basically once the Knights won the grand final, then that made it even more impossible. Um, Surprisingly, one plan which went reasonably far was a merger with the Chargers. So the plan was to move the players and members of the administration up to the Gold Coast. It never got as far as like, you know, naming rights or colours or anything like that. But that's an alternative history where this great crop of juniors and emerging internationals like Brett Kamali goes to the Gold Coast and secures the short-term future of rugby league there. Well, I'll tell you what, if that happened and Melbourne failed, yeah, we're looking at a whole different world. Yeah, there's so many things that would have changed if that happened. And, And you can't guarantee that it would have worked, but what it would have done would have guaranteed their place. Because in our next chapter, we're going to talk about the Chargers and the Crushers potential merger. And I don't think that merger would have necessarily been rubber stamped by News Limited in terms of the NRL and a guaranteed place in it. But if it had been a 50-50 merger in terms of one ARL, one Super League, then they're basically all but assured of being included in the NRL. And we don't have this seven or eight year lull with no Gold Coast team. Well, I'll tell you what, if the Mariners went up there and talking about jersey colours, there's only one winner out of that and that's Mrs. Muller's design. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about one thing we learned from this war is, you know, when you deal with bureaucracy and corporate douchebag types and everything's so slow moving, we'd have ten meetings to talk about the next meeting. The Super League's taught us decisions can get made really quickly if you have incentive to make them, you know. Yeah, so that merger didn't go ahead and, you know, the rest is history. There was a proposal for a Newcastle Bowl with the Mariners to play the Knights. Peter Fralingo said, why not stage a one-off winner-takes-all match between the Knights and Mariners at Marathon Stadium? (laughs) So I love this winner-takes-all. Like, what is the all that the winner is going to take in this? You know, if the Mariners win, suddenly 
they get the rights to Newcastle. Can you imagine if they won, right? And they were, all right, we're moving all games to Topper Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> we're playing in this weird Parramatta-esque um, surreal jersey. And I love the proposed Super Bowl between Newcastle and Brisbane. There's an obvious interest there and, and an obvious rationale for playing it. But what is the rationale between the Mariners and the Knights playing? You know, it, it's just... 30,000 night supporters and you being pelted to death in a polo shirt <laughs> by Kansas TVs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sounds, sounds delightful. Um, <laughs> but let me ask you this, right? That Super Bowl idea we've talked about at length as well, how mm. great that would have been just to, for it to happen. Yeah. So out of all the knee-jerk decisions they made from April Fool's onwards, one million knee-jerk decisions, and the only thing they don't – Agreed to is the Super Bowl game. Yeah. I would love to have seen the winner of that. Yeah. It mentioned if Newcastle won that, that would have been awesome. That's, yeah. And also, all the half a comp talk, that disappears immediately. It just would have been a really interesting thing to finish yeah, the war. Yeah, yeah. And also, conversely, does that Brisbane premiership get more widely recognized if they'd actually, you know, played the ARL winner for the rights of, you know, the 1997 premiers? I think they're actually uh, not hardly done by, but well done by, in that people just assume that they were the better team and they yeah. were the one that the comp yeah. when they, they didn't yeah. win anything. They went half a comp. Yeah. Maybe five-eighths of a comp. I think that's how it played out. And to their credit, Newcastle became a powerhouse for the next you know several seasons. It's not like they won the competition and shrunk. They did go on with it, but Brisbane announced themselves immediately by you know steamrolling the competition in 1998. Like You could see that they knew that they were the better team and nothing was going to stop them. Uh, but all this merger talk, and in the end, you know they became the bones of Melbourne. But basically, there was no future for the Mariners, despite Ian Frickberg coming out and saying that the Hunter Mariners will not be made a sacrificial lamb when <laughs> like every single person who knew anything about the game. Like That's an example of a, if you haven't got anything sensible to say, don't open your mouth. Like yeah. <laughs> their logo should have been a sacrificial lamb. Yeah. <laughs> Better than the Mariner. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah, they should have been the Rams. It would have been a <laughs> <laughs> And I think within the Mariners' administration, they knew that the writing was on the wall. Uh, Robert Finch saying, I'd like to play South Sydney and Balmain against the Hunter for the right to stay in the competition. But obviously, two sides out of Newcastle in the one competition is not rational. Which, as I said in my notes, that has never stopped rugby league before going with an irrational decision. <laughs> yeah. Was the uh, middle-of-the-night takeover of the game rational? Or Yeah. <laughs> and yet again, no one mentions just moving the Mariners to the Central Coast, which would have fit perfectly, given that yeah. they've got a soccer team called the Mariners later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mariners players having some gallows humour when they were talking about their trip to New Zealand for the final, saying that they'd only given us one-way tickets. <laughs> uh, the Mariners were still signing players through December, so Kevin Campion actually signed with them for 1998. Oh, what a signing. Yeah. But once that merger with the Chargers folded, that was basically it. Uh, Michael Hagan got a call from the Bulldogs as all this was happening, and, and he thought that was you know some great solidarity from his old club to ring him up and see how he was doing. Uh, but no, they just wanted to know what Brett Kamali's status was. <laughs> Graham Murray had to make a decision too, despite his wishes to stay with the Mariners. Once it became clear that that wasn't an option, 
he had to think of his future. And uh, the Daily Telegraph reported that he was offered one of the best jobs in rugby league coaching. So uh, I don't know, is Bozo moving on at Manly? Gus at East? Like, what, what is this best job? Uh, Leeds in England. <laughs> they couldn't stop the turd polishing from Super League. Yeah, yeah. Like it that, seemed, seemed it, it was just, it was so ingrained in their journalism that, yeah, <laughs> old habits die hard. But as we said, he took that job, had great success there, which was a springboard to his return to the NRL and taking the Roosters to a grand final. So the guy was a gun everywhere he went. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just this is something I don't have in my notes because I just came across it this morning, but it just speaks of his gentlemanly stature in the game. So, he was at a Newcastle Rugby League semi-final and saw Butterfield there. So this is in the midst of all this uh, animosity and went up and said g'day and said, oh, can I get you a beer? Um, and then Butts was like, you know, oh, yeah, you know, but I'm here with Chief, you know, like we're, we're kind of here together. And Murray was just like, well, I can get three then. I just love the lack of any animosity between Murray and the Knights, despite all the stuff that was happening between the two clubs. I really wish everybody in Rugby League was like him. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And not um, the complete opposite. (laughs) Murray is key to everything with the Mariners story. And this chapter is not called the Steel City Miracle. It is Steel City Miracles because, all right, yes, the World Club Challenge, Mickey Mouse, say what you want about it. But the fact is this, you know, new club with no support and playing in this horrible environment weren't far off making the finals, make it to the World Club challenge final you know beating the best of england beating the sharks in the semi-final and their last ever game as a club being in a cup final almost raised the most prestigious cup in world sport but the fact is they played that semi-final series knowing that when they lost a game that would be the last game they ever played like it's incredible i look back on it so fondly as an organic moment in history which is the things that i appreciate the most yeah they had nothing to play for they had every reason just to phone it in and didn't yeah and you can see the frustration knowing that what his team was achieving was something special and just getting no support and these appeals for support getting increasingly desperate as time went on so in the lead up to the final he was talking about how you know they had the red and blue sausages at the butchers and the streamers were everywhere and he said people have already got the red and blue streamers all they need to do is add a little yellow to it Uh, And Murray also trying to use some passive-aggressive tactics as well in his appeal for support, saying, it will be interesting to see if Newcastle really is the rugby league town everyone says it is. All we're after is a bit of moral support. We're a Newcastle side, so why would the people here want a Brisbane team to win it? (laughs) This guy does not understand how the Castro is. (laughs) I think the word you're looking for is spite there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The word spite, a great uh, point to introduce Johnny Raper into this chapter. (laughs) So after Murray's appeals for support, this was Raper's quote. I just watched him on TV and how the hell could he appeal to the Newcastle public after what he and Super League have done? (laughs) Me knowing how loyal Novocastrians are, he should have more common sense than to ask them to give him some support, which wasn't the first run-in that Murray had had with Johnny Raper in 1997. So you'll remember that Raper broke his Super League band to watch his son Stuart coach Castleford. Uh, After that game, Gray Murray went up to when Raper refused to shake his hand. I was at that game. I just love the being at a Super League game and not shaking his hand because he was aligned with Super League. 
There's no logic involved in these blokes. Yeah. Murray said, I'm stunned by it, especially when it's coming from a leading official still trying to keep the animosity going in times when we're trying to get the game back together again. And there are a lot of people here wanting to support us. I think that's why we love Murray so much. He's got absolutely no cunt in him. And yep. in rugby league, it's so rare given that that's such a benefit when you're playing. To have yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the other great thing, and maybe this is the biggest miracle of all, is that in the lead up to the World Club Challenge final, the Mariners actually received a fax from Knights Chief Executive Ian Burnett that said, congratulations on your mighty effort in reaching the final of the World Cup competition. So misnaming it, but the sentiment was there. Uh <laughs> Your contribution to the rugby league community of Newcastle is recognised and we wish you all the best. That's something. It's something. And uh, I'll leave this part of the chapter with a comment from Michael Hagan. From the first emotional day when the Mariners went within a heartbreaking two minutes of opening the season with a victory over Canterbury, we've gradually won the respect, if not the hearts, of the Hunter public. First thing, I think citation required regarding... <laughs> Winning the respect of the Newcastle public. <laughs> the team won my respect for sure, but um, it definitely didn't win the respect of a town and it didn't have the hearts of a town. <laughs> and the black hearts of a town. Yeah, and I think grudging respect was about the highest bar that the team could hopefully meet. They probably fell short. But I think looking back at it now, it's a great story and I've got so much fondness for the Mariners part of this Super League journey. If you weren't there or you weren't a um, genius researcher like yourself, it's just lost to history. And there wasn't many there, I tell you. No. It was my Ford laser full of four mates and me and um, <laughs> about five other people. Yeah. So a great story in spite of it all. But it is really a minor footnote in this story. And uh, part two of this chapter, we're going to get to the main event. I would encourage everyone in the lead up to that to rewatch the 1997 Grand Final. Here, here. It's so good. Yeah, we've both had a great time doing that ourselves and so many talking points to come. So I'm really, really pumped up for the next episode. That will be coming to you soon. So hope you've enjoyed this one and we will speak to you soon. Toodaloo. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.